0: hi my name is evan and i use he him
1: pronouns and my name is ian and i use they them pronouns and we are the The baker Baker street Street Regulars. regulars a podcast where we are taking a queer magnifying glass to the sherlock holmes canon and its many adaptations This is our first episode. Episode one. So what are we doing? Well, we're taking a queer magnifying glass to the Sherlock Holmes canon. Didn't you hear me? (laughs) Didn't you hear what I said?
0: (laughs) I did. I did. So going into this, what's your experience with Sherlock Holmes?
1: Not much, honestly. I mean, it's kind of like Star Wars for me, where I know the plot just out of pop culture. If that makes sense. So I know Sherlock through
0: like... You have diff- cultural awareness.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I have a gen- general awareness of Sherlock and Watson and what they do. and You've picked it up through
0: Cultural Osmosis Jones.
1: Yeah. Cultural Osmosis Jones. Best movie ever, by the
0: way. I've actually never seen it. <gasps> oh,
1: it's so good.
0: I have been a fan of the Sherlock Holmes stories for a long time. Mm-hmm. I certainly have like read some of them when I was a kid, and I was an avid follower of the BBC series. I think one of the things that makes me interested in the Sherlock Holmes stories is the potential for a queer subtext hmm. as a queer person, I have always enjoyed the way that people have always read queer subtext into these stories Mm -hmm. Uh, and I'm excited to look at the spectrum of of how much that subtext exists in the original stories and in various adaptations as well
1: right right and as an ally I (laughs) know no I feel the same way as a queer person I think it's like kind of the pop culture joke you know like batman and robin or burton ernie burton ernie frodo and sam you know you have these two pairings that are like they're like yeah they're gay and i feel kind of the same about sherlock and watson they're obviously gay
0: well we'll be the judge of that at
1: least i have the gavel right here i'm <laughs> bang bang they're gay
0: we've decided we've
1: decided they probably listen to Cher on the weekends <laughs> Do you believe in stereotypes? No. I've never listened to a stereo. (laughs) I've never heard a stereotype before in my life. (laughs) I think it's pretty impossible a stereo can't type. So let's start at the very beginning. I hear it's a really good place to start. Shout out to Julie Andrews. Julie, if you're listening, we
0: love you. So we're talking about two Sherlock Holmes novels today. Mm-hmm. The first one is A Study in Scarlet, mm-hmm. which is the first Sherlock Holmes novel. Right. Written in 1887. And published in Beaton's Christmas Annual. Because when I
1: think of Christmas, I think of Sherlock Holmes and A Murder Mystery. And Mormons. And, and Mormons. <laughs> Spoiler, there are Mormons in this. Right. I guess Mormons celebrate Christmas. My only like understanding of Mormons are through... Trey Parker and Matt Stone both on South Park and the Book of Mormon.
0: It's probably not the best way to get your Mormon facts.
1: Right. I mean, I could also start watching The Real Housewives of Salt Lake City because they're Mormon on that. We should become a, a Real Housewives
0: podcast. I was so worried you were going to say we should become Mormons. <laughs>
1: <laughs> As a bit, though.
0: As a bit. I'll, I'll commit to the bit. Commit to the bit. So, studying in Scarlet is interesting because it's the first... Sherlock Holmes novel ever introduces the characters. Mm -hmm. And then it also starts the process of codifying the detective genre over Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's career. Mm -hmm. He's credited with popularizing the detective story. Right.
1: I find it interesting that this was in a Christmas magazine. You know, we kind of consider this like a novel.
0: Well, and the other novel that we are discussing On this episode, Hound of the Baskervilles, was serialized, I believe, in the Strand Magazine, where a lot of the Sherlock Holmes stories were published. Which makes sort of more sense that you'd like, here's the latest chapter of the Sherlock Holmes adventure, or here's the newest Sherlock Holmes short story. But a novel feels like, I mean, it's not the longest novel. In the edition we have, it's 100 pages. Mm -hmm. But still, how thick was Beaton's Christmas annual? So let's go through the plot of Study in Scarlet and talk about some of the things that are interesting about it. This is our introduction to both characters. So I tried to take some notes about like character details we get about John and Sherlock, mm-hmm. John Watson, of course. John is the narrator of of the story, as he is in most Holmes stories, and part 1 because the story is in two parts. So maybe it was published in two different issues of the Beacon Annual. Maybe. But it's a Christmas annual. It's a Christmas annual. So
1: I, I would imagine that they only
0: do one for the, the holiday season, the festive season. Mm-hmm. To think Scrooge might have read Beaton's Christmas annual. Because he was in Victorian England. Right. Friend of the pod, Scrooge McDuck. <laughs> so part one of A Study in Scarlet is titled Part One, Being a Reprint from the Reminiscences of John H. Watson, M.D., late of the Army Medical Department. That's a mouthful. Certainly. It's his writing is, is mm-hmm. the important thing. But mm-hmm. the, like, the fact that he's recently from the Army Medical Department isn't really relevant. But that's how the story starts. He tells us about his recent war service in Afghanistan, how he was injured, how he moved back to London, and he finds himself like friendless and on a pension unemployed in london which is when he runs into his not even friend his former like school mate stanford well first of all like
1: the fact that (laughs) he's just friendless like no friends nothing at all coming back to london we don't even hear about family or anything
0: right He's just alone in the world.
1: He's just a lonely guy. Yeah.
0: I mean, that's the first thing we learned about him is that he's just like adrift in London and he's spending his money too quickly. So he tells Stanford that he needs to find a roommate probably. Mm-hmm. And Stanford's like, I know a guy. Isn't Stanford like a guy that like Watson doesn't even really like? Doesn't even really like him. Yeah. He didn't like him when they were at school, but he recognizes him and he's like, let's hang out. <laughs> but, so Stanford's like, I know a guy. I don't know if we totally get how Stanford knows Sherlock. I don't think we do either, because Sherlock is also friendless, mm-hmm. which is why they're perfect together. But Sanford is like, "Come meet this guy who is doing experiments in the lab at the hospital I work at," and then we we get our big character introduction for Mister Sherlock Holmes.
1: Sherlock Holmes,
0: the man, the myth, yeah. the legend. This the the first chapter of this book is called Mister Sherlock Holmes, and the first chapter of Hound of the Baskervilles is also called Mister Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> <laughs> Arthur Conan Doyle's like, first things first, Mr. Sherlock
1: Holmes. (laughs) (laughs) And he's sort of introduced in a way as like a manic pixie dream Sherlock.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And I don't know that we like get this after this, but when Watson meets him, he has just like invented forensics effectively. He's discovered this process to determine if if blood has been on something or is on something.
1: And it's quoted as like, he's looking as delighted as a child with a new toy.
0: Working with this blood. Yeah. He's just, like, like jumping up and down and excited. Which is so funny because, like, I feel like the version of Sherlock we're used to seeing is very, like, reserved and very, like, emotionless. So, Mm -hmm. like, the fact that he gets introduced displaying strong emotion is sort of funny to me. So, they move in together. Oh, Sherlock also makes a deduction that Watson was in Afghanistan and then doesn't explain how he knows. Right. They move in together. And Watson spends the next, I don't know how long this period is, like, feels like a month, maybe at least, being like, what does this guy do with his time? Just kind of observing. Yeah. He's unemployed in London. Watson, I mean. And he's just like, I'm suddenly obsessed with my roommate. (laughs) He makes a report card about all of the things that Sherlock knows, which I sort of love. Just normal girly things. Right. He's like, knowledge of astronomy, nil. He does not know that the Earth orbits the sun. (laughs) Knowledge of like, funguses or whatever, a hundred like he's he, 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 working of all the things that Sherlock knows, and then looks at it and goes, "I have no clue what this guy does with his time. Why does he know these things, and not know other things?"
1: We also find out that Watson has a dog that doesn't
0: appear later on. I had to research this because the what he says is, "I keep a bull pup," and then it's never mentioned again. So I there are like blog posts where people talk about what the situation is with the dog, whether or not the dog exists. There are some people who are like, Oh, keep a bull pup is slang for the time for I have a temper. But Arthur Conan Doyle in his other writings in his non Sherlock writings uses the, the term bull pup to refer to a dog every time. So it probably means a dog, but the dog is never mentioned again in apparently in any of the novels or short stories. So maybe Arthur just forgot.
1: Yeah, it's kind of interesting, and we'll see this probably later down the line, since this was his first, it's going to be interesting to see, like, what he just forgot or omitted from future books, you know? Because this was, again, the first one, so he didn't know where he was really going with this
0: character. Or if he was. Or, or if, if, yeah. I don't know if he had plans yet. Well, And the funny thing about Arthur Conan Doyle and Sherlock is that he sometimes wrote them sort of sloppily because he didn't think they were that important. He, uh-huh. he was like Sherlock is keeping me from my real writing, which is, you know, obviously not remembered today. I was going to say, what, what else did he write? What did he write? He wrote all 60 Sherlock Holmes stories. That's what he wrote. That That's it. Yeah. Nothing else. <laughs> he did write other things. Maybe we'll do an
1: episode about it. Yeah, we should. Oh, he also notices that Sherlock plays the violin. <laughs>
0: Well, Sherlock tells him that he plays the violin uh, Mm. when they're discussing whether or not they'll move in together. They're discussing their faults. Mm -hmm. Sherlock is like, I hope you don't mind. It's described as him saying it anxiously, which I like. Already he's like, I hope that this guy moves in with me. I hope you don't mind that I play the violin. What I love about it, though, is that Watson describes that Sherlock plays the violin while he's in thought, which is a trait that he'll have for, I think, all the stories. A lot of adaptations deal with that, too. But that as like an apology, when he's finished, he'll play a number of Watson's favorite songs.
1: That's so cute. That's
0: so cute.
1: That's so so boyfriend. And
0: they've like just moved in together. So it's sort of like a, you know, at least it's like a nice thing to do.
1: It's adorable. They should kiss.
0: So eventually the game has to become clear. And the way that it becomes clear is that I have to assume, knowing what you know about the characters, that Sherlock leaves this article out intentionally. Right? Mm. Watson finds an article lying around with, like, a pencil mark on it about the science of deduction. Right. And he doesn't realize that Sherlock wrote it. And he says... I have the quote here. But He's complaining about it to Sherlock. He says, What ineffable twaddle, the theory of some armchair lounger who evolves all these neat little paradoxes in the seclusion of his own study, it is not practical. And I I love this because I think we get this idea that Sherlock is, like, an armchair detective. I think Mm -hmm. we get that phrase from this. In fact, when Sherlock is explaining... What he does a couple lines later, he says, "I listen to their story. They listen to my comments, and then I pocket the fee." So, like the way he describes his practice is like happens entirely within the walls of Baker Street.
1: But I also just like that he like leaves out this article to be like, "I hope you notice it."
0: Yeah, yeah, I can't help but feel knowing what you know about Sherlock Holmes that he's like noticed that Watson is trying to figure out what he does and w- and why he does it, mm-hmm. and he's like, "All right, here, <laughs> let's let's talk about this."
1: But it's also, like, really cute. He's like, I hope you like my article. You know, he probably put it out and was like, oh, I hope he likes it. Right.
0: Right. And then Watson is like, this is very silly. And then Sherlock is like, like, there's
1: my article. My article. Buddy.
0: Yeah. So then he has to show off. Right. Right. He deduces the occupation of a man on the street and then is immediately proven right when the man comes up the stairs to deliver a letter. And Watson is pressed. Right. And...
1: You know, I'm interested with how he deduces things, because he does it so, like, to the point, he talks to the person, and just off the things, like, he notices. And I have a feeling that a lot of people, when adapting this, are going to try to make it, like, a lot of quick moving camera shots. Just are going to get kind of, like, fancy with how they show this deduction, or how he thinks.
0: I feel like you have seen more adaptations. I think you're lying to me about the number of adaptations you've seen. I think you're very much right about this. It's not even that I've
1: seen adaptations. It's just I know, and I think through the last couple of seasons, I think I know a little bit like how Hollywood writers and such like to get the message across. Totally. Because if it's just like a man sitting in a chair talking about it,
0: it might seem a little bit boring. Yeah, and and I think even Arthur Conan Doyle recognizes that because immediately after Sherlock is like, I'm an armchair detective, basically, the letter that arrives is him being invited to a crime scene and he has to go do in-person sleuthing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he invites Watson along for no reason. He's like, if you have nothing better to do, you might as well come see me i think he's showing off i think he's like if you think it's if you think it's so fake
1: i think he's flirting i think he's like this is our first date
0: we're going on a <laughs> date together i mean you're joking but i think they do like like later the same day go to an art museum together don't they mm-hmm. so just part two of the date just part two of the date. part one see a corpse part two mm-hmm. part
1: yeah he's like you know if you're not doing anything maybe you should come see this like cool corpse with me you know And also, you're a doctor, and, like, you might be able to... But they
0: don't... No, but he doesn't call upon his medical expertise at all. I mean, it's not like, like, do an examination of this body. It's like, come watch me be smart. So, they go to the scene of the crime. There's been a murder. The game is afoot, and the game is murder. There's a man found dead in a supposedly abandoned house, Mm -hmm. with no marks on his body, but blood around him he has a business card in his pocket for his name which is enoch drebber of cleveland and they find a woman's ring Mm -hmm. and on the wall written in blood is a racha which i thought was Rach, like rachel and so does so there's two inspectors from the police force who are there lestrade and gregson who are like both trying to one up each other the whole time lestrade Mm -hmm. is sort of a fixture in these stories I don't know if Gregson survives past this one, but they're both, I don't know, not as smart as Sherlock Holmes, obviously. Well, no. No one's as smart as Sherlock. Of course.
1: And even Sherlock kind of says something along that lines, you know. He's like, it would be robbing you of the credit of the case if I were to presume to help you. You are doing so, and now it would be a pity for anyone to interfere.
0: Right. He's so sarcastic. Kind of being That's smart-ass. Such a smart-ass move to be like, I'm sure you guys, like, he's been invited to help them solve the case, and he's like, well... Maybe I will. Maybe I won't. Yeah, you guys got it. You guys, got, you guys, you guys have it right. Yeah, which, You're which Fine. Is... You don't need me. <laughs> but he, uh, but so Lestrade is like, well, it says it says Rach on the on the wall. There must he must have been trying to write Rachel. That's the woman who killed him. And Sherlock is like, no, Ache is German for revenge. I will be saying Rach for the time being. It could be. I'm not.
1: I don't speak German. But Sherlock does leave. The scene of the crime with two final thoughts. The victim died of poison, and that Reich, Reich, however you pronounce it, is German for revenge. And he does like share some of his deductions so far with Watson, but he refuses to explain his conclusions. You know, he says, You know a conjurer gets no credit when once he has explained the trick, and if I show you too much of my method of working, you will come to the conclusion that I am a very ordinary individual after
0: all. What I love about this though is that John flatters him. I have I have the quote here. John compliments his part of deduction and then compares it to flirting with a girl he says my companion flushed up with pleasure at my words and the earnest way in which I uttered them I had already observed that he was as sensitive to flattery on the score of his art as any girl could be of her beauty they're flirting they're flirting and then even though Sherlock was just like well I can't I can't tell you everything because then you'll think that I'm not special which also he wants John to think that he's like really cool and smart mm-hmm. after John flatters him he does one more deduction <laughs>
1: <He's> like, <laughs> well okay one more thing
0: since you like it so much since you like it you know so they go to interview the night watchman who discovered the body and sherlock is like a bit of an asshole about it Mm -hmm. because he realizes that the night watchman passed by the person who was probably the murderer who was pretending to be a drunk but let him get get away and he's like you could have had a great promotion what a mistake you've made and it's like it's yeah you
1: don't you don't have to tell him Kind of kind of being a dick about kind it. Kind of being a
0: dick about it. And I, I feel like we're going to see that a lot, too. That Sherlock can sometimes be an asshole to people mm-hmm. about how smart he is and how dumb they are. Except
1: Watson. Except Watson.
0: Except Watson. He's just flirting. He's just flirting with Watson.
1: Everybody else, he's like, I'm smarter than you. Right. But Watson,
0: we're soulmates. Even Watson, he sometimes gets a little like, oh, you're not that smart. but, But with love. Sherlock has placed a advertisement in the paper for the missing ring and mm-hmm. someone shows up to claim it. Right, an old woman who says it was her daughter's. They like seems legit. And They give her the ring back and then Sherlock goes and follows her. Mhm. And loses her. Yes. And I also like this that Sherlock can be like can like make mistakes. Right. You know, I think there's there's some versions of this where it's like He's the perfect machine. He's a computer. He's, you know, but I, I like that he messes up sometimes. Yeah. It shows that he's
1: human. Mm-hmm. But after, you know, losing her, he kind of deduces she's a man in disguise.
0: How? I, I, I'm not sure. I think it's because she must have been fairly spry to get away. Women can't be spry. Women can't be spry later much later in the story at the end he asks the murderer "Who is your friend who was pretending to be the old woman and the murderer is like i can't give up all my secrets which i love because like it implies that the murderer who we later learn is like fairly new to the city of london and is pretty hell-bent on revenge like took the time to make friends with somebody who was like ready to dress as an old woman at a moment's notice <laughs> And I have a lot of questions about that that are never answered. <laughs> so uh, then we barrel towards the conclusion of the first part of this story. Mm-hmm. Um, Gregson shows up and he's like, haha, Sherlock, I have actually solved it. And I have the man in custody. The man who died, Drebber, was staying at a boarding house where he flirted with the daughter of the proprietor and her brother was mad and chased him away. Mm -hmm. And he's like, I've arrested the brother, I have him in custody. That silly Lestrade, he's chasing down entirely the wrong tack. He's going after the secretary of Drebber, who was also in town. And then Lestrade bursts in and is like, the secretary has been murdered. And everyone's like, well, then it can't have been the brother because why would he murder the secretary and he's in custody and, you know. Oh, we, we forgot to mention the Baker Street Irregulars. Right. This is where the podcast gets its name from. There are... A group of street urchins. The Actually, the book calls them street Arabs, which I don't love. No. Racism typical of the period, I suppose. That Holmes employs to do like some sleuthing around the streets for him. And one of them at this moment shows up and tells Holmes that his cab is here. Mm-hmm. And he asks the the irregular to tell the... Cabby to come up and help him with his suitcases Watson is like I didn't know you were going anywhere mm-hmm. and going somewhere with suitcases indicates like a longer stay so the cabby comes up and like bends over to help him with the suitcases and then Sherlock with some sort of sleight of hand puts handcuffs on him like immediately mm-hmm. and is like this is the killer this is our guy this is our guy he's, he, the cabby's name is Jefferson Hope
1: and that's the end of part one yeah So we already have our killer. We've (laughs) already kind of solved it. And you're like, what more is there? Right.
0: Like, I don't quite understand how all the pieces fit together, but like we found the guy, right? Yeah, we did it. Dramatically, I'm sort of satisfied. You're like, this should be a short story. Why is this a novel? Part two is called The Country of the Saints. Okay. (laughs) Part two opens in the desert. And a man, John Ferrier, and his adopted daughter, Lucy Ferrier, are dying of starvation. They're not just in the desert. They're in Utah. And there's no farrier in the first half. We haven't met these people before. Right. It's, these are just new characters. And it's, it's several pages before we hear any names we've heard before because they are eventually picked up and rescued by
1: the Latter-day Saints. Not even just the Latter day Saints, but by Brigham
0: Young himself. The OG Latter day Saints. Yeah. So the Mormons traveled west in search of religious freedom, and they eventually settled in Salt Lake City, or what is now Salt Lake City. Mm-hmm. They, they pick up the Farriers on their way to Salt Lake City. They have not arrived yet.
1: Right. And the only condition is that the Farriers now must be Mormon. They have to adopt and live under the Mormon faith.
0: It's mentioned that two of the people in the party that picked them up are named Stangerson and Drepper, which is the names of the two murdered men. Yes. So we were like, oh, okay, this is kind. This is going to be related eventually.
1: <laughs> right, right. We kind of flash forward years later. Lucy, the little girl, is now older and she has fallen in
0: love with Jefferson Hope. We had a lot of gender stuff. In right. this section, I want to read two quotes that I thought were interesting. Here's the two quotes. The first is about Lucy. She's described as being as fair a specimen of American girlhood as could be found in the whole Pacific slope. And then when the man she meets, Jefferson Hope, who falls in love with her, does so, it, it says The love which had sprung up in his heart was not the sudden changeable fancy of a boy, but rather the wild, fierce passion of a man. Of impetuous will and strong temper. So a man's man. A man-man. She's a woman-woman. He's a man-man. Cannot make it any more obvious. So,
1: yeah, Jefferson Hope and Lucy, they are in love. And they would like to be married. However, Brigham Young forbids her from marrying Hope because he is not a Mormon. So she can't marry outside the faith. And demands that she marry either Joseph Stangerson or Enoch
0: Drebber who are both members of the Mormon faith. So they have 30 days to make the choice. And I really like this device here. I think this is the best part of the second section, which is a low bar maybe, which is the next morning when John Ferrier wakes up, he has a number pinned to his chest, which is the number 29. So somebody has crept into his house at night and pinned this number to him, there's this... uh, sect of the Mormons called the Danites or Danites maybe, Mm -hmm. which is a real group that act as like a secret police force effectively disappearing people and enforcing the will of Mormonism. Arthur Conan got some pushback for (laughs) his depiction of the Mormons. He describes the Danites as like capturing women from local non-Mormon groups to be their wives, which probably did not happen. And this whole silent assassin thing is is not accurate to Mormonism, probably. So yeah, he has kind of
1: this this Advent calendar of counting down the days. I love
0: this. So yeah, over the next several days, every day a number will show up somewhere. So it's like painted on the barn, or it'll be propped up on the fence, or it'll be written on the, the rafters in his kitchen, or there's just always a new number, 29, 28, 27, and so on, counting all the way down until I think 2... When Jefferson Hope finally shows up, because they'd written to him and said, oh my god, please help us.
1: Yeah, Jefferson Hope comes back, and they all just sneak off into the night to escape under They're... the cover of darkness. However, they are intercepted by the Mormons, while Hope is away hunting for
0: five hours. <laughs> yeah, he does a five-hour hunting trip. And when he gets back, John Ferrier is, like, dead and buried. yes. And Lucy has been recaptured by the Mormons and brought back to Mormonville. And marries Drebber. And okay, marries Drebber. And Stangerson is the one who shot... The dad. ...Farrier. Yeah. Which is why the revenge... There's this weird thing that happens here where as soon as Lucy is captured, he like gives her up for dead immediately. <laughs> like he, he seems distraught when he finds out that she's been married, but also he's just snuck into the Mormon town and stolen her out, surely he could do it a second time right. and do it better. But no, he's just like, well, I guess revenge is my only recourse now because she's been stolen and married. She's, I don't know, she's soiled goods or something. like. It's, uh, Arthur Conan has got some sexist impulses <laughs> from time to time. And I think this is one of those examples. Lucy's married and then immediately dies off page. She dies a month later from a broken heart, which is a real thing. I just can't picture a, a Arthur Conan Doyle male hero dying of a broken heart off page so Jefferson Hopes swears his revenge, he chases Stangerson and Drebber around America and then around all of Europe well first he steals the wedding ring oh he steals right, the wedding ring
1: at her funeral
0: <laughs> right, so he can show up
1: <laughs> He literally the night before the funeral he comes to her casket side and takes the ring and then swears revenge for the wrongdoings.
0: Could have showed up sooner. I don't know. He could have, yeah. If he could have broken in the whole time. (laughs) So then he he chases Stangerson and Deborah around various countries for 20 years. 20 years, yeah. I don't know why it takes him that long to catch up with them. So then we cut back to Sherlock's study. Mm -hmm. Jefferson Hope has just been captured. They escort him to the police precinct. And he's like, let me tell you my story. And it's like, didn't we just hear the story? (laughs) I was like, there's more? There's more? Because this is, I mean, we've made it shorter, but it's like several chapters. It's like a good chunk of the book is this like odd romance novel about settlers in Utah. And it's like, when I picture Sherlock Holmes, I think of like the, you know, foggy, gaslit London streets, Victorian (laughs) England. And they're like, the plains of Utah, a cowboy and a cowgirl,
1: you know. And the only reason Hope is like, I will tell you my story is because now he's, you know,
0: dying of a heart condition. Yes. Yeah. Conveniently. He's like, I better tell you my story now because I don't think I'll ever make it to see a judge. Right. There's also this, like, masculine hero thing going on. He says, you'd have done the same if you had any manhood in you if you'd been in my place. And I think that we're supposed to agree with him. I think that we in the audience are like, he was right to do those murders. Right. Yeah, it was good. It was good, good to murders. murders. And there's also this implication that The murders might have been condoned by God. We totally skipped over this earlier, but when Lestrade found Stangerson murdered, he discovered this pill bottle. And Holmes was like, aha, the final piece of my of my puzzle. And he has Watson go get a dog (laughs) that uh, that he says, go get that Spaniel or whatever that Mrs. Hudson. It's a Scottish Terrier, Scottish Terrier that Mrs. Hudson was begging you to put down. And then he kills the dog to prove a point, mm. <laughs> which is just that the pills are poison. Well,
1: th- there are two pills. One is just a regular pill and doesn't
0: do anything. And then the second one does something. It does kill the dog. Right. And when Jefferson Hope is explaining his story, he first of all has to like do this detour to explain why he has these pills at all. Mm-hmm. Which is just that he worked at a college for a while while he was <laughs> tracking down the men. But... but the idea was that he'd that he'd have sets of the two pills were identical, where one is poison and one is perfectly safe, and then he would make the two men choose. Right. And he says, let the high God judge between us. Let us see if there is justice in this world or if we are ruled by chance. And then it would have been the same in any case for Providence would never have allowed his guilty hand to pick anything but the poison. So there's this sense of, like, God also knew these men were guilty, and in some sense, like... Jefferson Hope is innocent because he did not force them to take poison. He gave them a choice and they happened to pick poison. I mean, I think I think this is like, you know, a roundabout, but still murder.
1: <laughs> right. Right?
0: I, I I guess we're supposed to be like, maybe his soul is clean or something. Or yeah,
1: and I think that's God like... God was on it. I don't really know. I think that's his, his thing. It's like,
0: I didn't do it. They picked it themselves. They had a choice. I just don't think it fits. I mean, not till Sherlock, Sherlock, but I just think that... If I'd been tracking down the men who murdered my wife-to-be and her father-in-law for 20 years, I wouldn't leave it up to chance. Right. I mean, I guess to him he's not leaving it up to chance, but how embarrassing... if. It had gone wrong, <laughs> right? He get he gets the
1: poison one. I feel like if he got like the poison mm-hmm. one, or if they picked like the actual like
0: regular pill, he'd be like, "No, you want this one." Oh, but they're identical. I think he doesn't know either. I that's think that's fair. That's the whole point, which is wild. Like, yeah, just kill people.
1: <laughs> just kill people.
0: Yeah, yeah. I don't know if that makes sense.
1: And psychologically right so you know he he escorted a drunk drebber to the abandoned house and made him take one of the two potentially poison pills right his nose bled Yeah, he, well, he, he got a nosebleed which is why there's blood on the floor in the excitement of the murder a little blood started dripping out and he decided to write revenge in german on the wall with that blood Just you know. throw them off yeah just girly things
0: <laughs> i think it's a little complicated
1: a little bit and it doesn't even you know it almost didn't work for stangerson because
0: right stangerson like attacks him when he sees him coming through the window and he had to stab him instead of making him take the poison so he didn't even get the like clean soul they chose thing for both of them so that takes us to the end of the story sherlock explains some more of his deductions which i think is interesting especially because this is like the first story
1: Right. And he kind of explains his deductions as a process of reasoning backwards instead of forwards. A really great quote that he says is, there's no branch of detective science, which is so important and so much neglected as the art of tracing footsteps.
0: Yes. I love this because I think it's like the prototypical image of a detective is like the magnifying glass and the, uh, and the footsteps and both come from this story. This is the first detective story to feature someone using a magnifying glass. Mm hmm. This is my favorite thing, though. When he's talking to Watson about his reasoning about trying to figure out why the murder had occurred, he said, Robbery had not been the object of the murder, for nothing was taken. Was it politics then, or was it a woman? The two genders, politics or a woman. <laughs> I love the idea that it can only be those things. <laughs> politics, robbery, women.
1: Nothing else. Nothing else. And later, you know, that'll be proven wrong in another story yeah
0: I feel like there's lots of reasons people kill people yeah doesn't have to be women doesn't have to be
1: women doesn't have to be politics Mm -hmm. Uh, so this whole story gets published in a newspaper and unfortunately Sherlock does not
0: get any credit for this story Watson is of course outraged but he, he offers to publish his own account of the story. And I don't know if he does, but like, I think for the rest of the stories, they're almost all narrated by Watson mm-hmm. talking about his experiences at Sherlock's side. So <laughs> this is the beginning of that. And I think we also get this path from Sherlock not being a public figure in this story right. to being like, recognized and people seeking him out specifically.
1: Well, in the newspaper, Sherlock is described as an amateur who may someday hope to attain the skill of Lestrade and Gregson.
0: And then Watson is like, well, at least you know the truth <laughs> and the book ends.
1: And that is A Study in Scarlet. Thoughts?
0: I think this is interesting because we get so much about the characters. I think this is our, because this is our character introduction to both. I mean, what we learned about Watson, we learned that he's friendless and that mm-hmm. he'll go along with an adventure. And we learned about
1: Sherlock that he's friendless and loves an adventure. And loves
0: an adventure. And loves nothing more than a case to solve. Match made in heaven. Match made in heaven. I'm excited to see what they do next. Yeah.
1: I'm excited because with the way that this novel is structured, you know, with having the main mystery and then the backstory and then the ending of the mystery, I'm excited to see, like, the traditional structure of having it all happen at once.
0: Yeah, setting together the structure is super weird because what we now think of as like the typical detective story structure where you get the case at the beginning and then you solve it and then there's the big climax where you catch the person and then maybe you like explain some things afterwards. That we see more in later Sherlock Holmes stories. But in this one, it's like you get the case and then you solve it and then there's a long backstory that explains how we got there. And it's sort of unclear if like Watson and Sherlock are privy to all of that backstory. Like Jefferson doesn't actually explain the whole thing about the Mormons. So do they know about it? Is it part of the same text that Watson wrote? It's it's really unclear a- and also like not as dramatically satisfying. I'll say a
1: modern good representation of a study in Scarlet structure is Glass Onion where, and spoilers for Glass Onion if you haven't seen it.
0: Also, we should probably should have said spoilers for a study in Scarlet. And oh. in, in, in advance Spoilers for Hound of the Baskervilles. Spoilers for
1: everything. You know, <laughs> if, if you're
0: listening to this, you're getting all the spoilers. Yeah, this is a spoiler show.
1: Yeah. But in Glass Onion, in like the middle of the film, you know, Janelle Monae's character is shot and presumed dead. And so after that, we get to see basically everything leading up to what the first 30 minutes of the film you know, Janelle Monet's backstory, as well as her involvement with Daniel Craig's character. And we get to see it like basically in the middle of the film. And then the ending is just like a study in Scarlet, the ending.
0: I think that glass onion makes a number of significant improvements to the structure though, because when we go back, we already know who all the players are and we care about them. And it's clear what the connection is to the main story. Mm-hmm. And it happens in the middle. So, If that's how this had happened, if we were getting bits of it throughout, or if between the murders of Drebber and Stangerson, we found out who Jefferson Hope was and what he was up to, maybe that would be stronger. Maybe. But what's exciting about jumping to the next one we're doing, Hound of the Baskervilles, is that between them, it seems like Arthur Conan Doyle has figured out how to write a detective novel. Which is fair, because it was still a new form when he was writing Study in Scarlet. Right. I guess he really
1: he really invented it. This was like his first.
0: Go Some at would it. say that Edgar Allan Poe invented the detective novel. Really? Yes. Hmm. But certainly Conan Doyle popularized it and the short story. Shall we discuss the Hound of the Baskervilles?
1: Baskerville's arguably the most famous Sherlock Holmes story of them all. Definitely. Like this, if you're going to hear of any Sherlock Holmes story, this is the one.
0: Yes. Yeah. Easily the most famous Sherlock Holmes novel. Probably the Sherlock Holmes story with the most recognition, the most parodies, that kind Mm -hmm. of thing. And honestly, the most adaptations. Oh, probably. Yeah. It was published in 1902. Yes. This is like the famous thing that happened with Sherlock Holmes is that at the end of the 1800s, Conan Doyle killed off Sherlock Holmes in the story The Final Problem, which we're going to read next week. Mm-hmm. And this is like eight or nine years later that he wrote this book, whether caving to like audience demand or out of a need for money or what. But this is in, this is a return of the character Sherlock Holmes. And shortly after this, he would write The Empty House, the story that officially resurrected home because this story is set before the final problem Mm -hmm. before his death but it is a return for the character in many ways what I like about this is that this one actually begins with Sherlock encouraging Watson to make deductions yes so someone has left behind a staff in their study and he asks Watson to try to deduce he's like you know my methods what do you what do you think this person who left this staff behind is like Mm mm-hmm and Watson makes his, his guesses. He's mm-hmm. like, well, there's some initials on the side, and I guess that means this. And it's used a certain way, so I think this must have been left by this kind of person. And Sherlock's like, ha no, you're wrong. You're completely <laughs> wrong. He says, you have habitually underrated your own abilities. It may be that you are not yourself luminous, but you are a conductor of light. He's <laughs> basically like, you're completely wrong, but like you being wrong helps me figure out what the right answer is they complete each other they complete each other which is interesting because like like what is the function of Watson in this relationship if Sherlock's always the smart one always the one solving puzzles it's just to like it's just to be the one who writes things down and be like wow you're really incredible he's the straight man for lack of a better word right the man who arrives is Dr. Mortimer mm-hmm. and what I love about this is that Sherlock's deductions are also a little bit wrong again mm-hmm. about Dr. Mortimer I, I like that seeing that human side. I like a Sherlock that can make mistakes. I think, yeah, I think it's, I think it, I think it's humanizing. Yeah. Dr. Mortimer is a phrenologist, which is a racist pseudoscience about the study of head bumps. It, it's not ever relevant. It comes up a few times over the course of the novel. I just think it's a funny like thing to include when he, when he meets Holmes, he's heard of him and heard of how smart he is. And he tells Holmes that he covets his skull <laughs> creepy creepy and he's not the murderer he's (laughs) he is not the murderer but so he he goes on a long speech he unfolds the curse of the baskervilles right it's like many many generations ago there was an evil man called hugo baskerville and he was killed by a giant hound and it's a local legend and then like a week ago Sir Charles Baskerville, the latest of the Baskerville line, died under mysterious circumstances. Here is the official newspaper report of his death. He died of a heart problem just outside his house. But when I saw the body next to it, there was the footprint of a gigantic hound. And he also had the face that expressed horror. Right. Spooky. Spooky. This is a ghost story. This is a ghost story. This is Yeah, this is a spooky This one. is a spooky novel. So... He doesn't want Sherlock to solve the murder of Charles Baskerville. Right. What what he actually wants is advice. He says, the new guy who's heir to the Baskerville Hall and the title of the Baron. Henry Baskerville. Henry Baskerville is arriving in town in like 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. What should I do with him? Can I take him to his ancestral home or will he be murdered by a ghost dog? And Holmes is like, let me think about it. He says, come back tomorrow with Henry Basketball. We'll talk in the morning mm-hmm. and I'll think about it. In the meanwhile, he sends Watson out. He says, go stop by the tobacconist. Tell him to send up a lot of tobacco. <laughs> and Watson goes out for the day. And when he gets back, the room is filled with smoke because he's been smoking all day and thinking about this this problem. Right. He has this odd aside about the room, about the room being filled with smoke from the tobacco. He's like I've always found a concentrated atmosphere it is better for thinking. I have not followed this to its logical extreme of getting into a box to think though. <laughs> <laughs> and I just love the idea of Sherlock being like I have to get in my coffin. I have to go. <laughs> I have to go think. Excuse He's me. He's like this is my thinking coffin. Yeah. I or, go in here to think. Or a closet or whatever. He also he makes a deduction about Watson when he walks in and he says there is a delightful freshness about you Watson which makes it a pleasure to exercise any small powers which I possess at your expense.
1: That's cute. That's cute. That's cute. That's kind of
0: cute. But then he's like, Watson, you're not a man with intimate friends. <laughs> right. Also, I feel like deducing where Watson has been for the day is, does not, is not difficult because they know each other. They've lived together for years. Right. Right. So, like, the fact that his deduction, which is that Watson went to his club, is like, doesn't take a genius. Yeah, it doesn't take one. You know. So, the next morning, they meet Henry Baskerville with with Dr. Mortimer again. And Henry Baskerville was like, I've had two upsetting things happen to me. I have received a warning note, which is classic, like all the letters and words clipped out of newspaper, which is like, do not come to the moor. Right. And then worst of all, he lost one of his boots. He lost a boot.
1: Oh no. Oh no. <laughs> this is bad. Right. How will he walk? <laughs> his feet will get dirty. We can't have that.
0: <laughs> well, and what's worse is that the next day, he has lost another boot. Right. Yeah. The the boots are gone. But the first boot returns. Right. Yeah. The second boot does not return until the end of the novel. It's important. It's an important <laughs> clue. Oh, I should also mention that after Dr. Mortimer and Henry Baskerville leave, Holmes and Watson trail them for a little bit. And there's also a, a man in a cab also trailing them. Mm-hmm. And when he sees Sherlock and Watson, he flies right. off. Right. And that man is Jefferson Hope. Is that is that Jefferson <laughs> Hope? No. But I, I love the idea that it's just that Arthur Condeil is like cabs are the root of all evil. Right. <laughs> Cabbies are, are where it's at.
1: And they don't notice much about the man who in the cab who goes off except that he has like
0: a long beard. Yes. So so he puts out a number of feelers. He has a boy go and check the waste bins in all the hotels to see if he can find a cut up page of the times which is where the note came from he calls up the cab company for the person driving the cab that he saw and he also sends a telegram to Barrymore who is the housekeeper at Baskerville Hall who also as it turns out has a beard matching the description of the man they saw in the cab Mm -hmm. and all three threads basically turn up nothing all the trash has been incinerated the cabbie stops by and says oh you know mysterious man these are his orders he left he said that his name was sherlock holmes which is fun it's like he's being taunted by whoever was in the cab the customer in the cab knew who sherlock holmes was and also like knew he was smart enough to figure out that he probably wouldn't find out the name right and then barrymore has received the telegram and returned and we later find out that his wife is the one who responded to it so it's inconclusive whether or not he was at baskerville hall during the day that they saw the cabbie right so Sherlock is like, Watson, you're going to go to Dartmoor to be with Henry Baskerville and to watch things. And I'm going to stay here to deal with a different case.
1: <laughs> and Watson's like, oh, yeah. no,
0: boyfriend, come with me. Well, and Sherlock seems a little worried for him. He says, I shall be very glad to have you back safe and sound in Baker Street once more.
1: <laughs> They're in love.
0: They're in love. They're in love. <laughs> they certainly care for each other. Yes. There's a depth of feeling of some sort
1: between them. We also forgot to mention that while they're sort of waiting for, you know, to hear back for all these different leads, they go to an
0: art gallery. And Watson, like, negs him about art. In the text, he's like, he has the crudest ideas about art.
1: (laughs) Which I think is so funny. It's so cute. They go on a little date. They're like, what are we going to do? We're going to go on a date.
0: They're just two lonely men living together in England who like to go to the arts together. (laughs) Nothing weird about that. So...
1: Watson goes to Baskerville Hall Mm -hmm. like I said Sherlock instructs Watson to you know to suspect the caretaker and as well as the neighbors
0: and pay attention to everything and everyone we get like an entire chapter of gloomy scene setting while they travel yeah it's not bad but it doesn't drag on no but it is just a lot of like everything was depressing and the earth was gray and the <laughs> sky was gray and there's a dangerous criminal loose on the moor also right they're like oh yeah the Seldon the murderer is out there and they're watching for him they're gonna find him so like like not only is is everything look creepy but there's also like a dangerous man loose out there Th- this place got everything you know Hound of the Baskerville a convict and also, quicksand. Oh, yeah. They call it the Grimpen Mire. The next chapter, he meets one of the neighbors, Stapleton, who is a naturalist. He, I, actually, when he meets Stapleton, he deduces that he's a naturalist, <laughs> which is fun. Like, he actually has learned from Sherlock's methods. Like, he's, he's, not, he's not some slouch. And because he's heard there's a naturalist and the, the man has like, a, has like a box and a net. And he's like, oh, that must be the naturalist. Mm-hmm. But a Stapleton is like, oh, that's the mire And, Meyer, and uh, animals who step wrong, get sucked down and never are seen again. And they watch a pony get like dragged to its death. Right. <laughs> so like, if it wasn't gloomy enough. Also, my favorite thing is that after this long chapter of scene setting, Henry Baskerville, upon arriving at his ancestral home, says, My word, it isn't a very cheerful place, <laughs> which is the understatement of the year. <laughs> Century, even. Right.
1: <laughs> so at this point, weird things start happening at the Baskerville house. You know, Watson is kind of taking note of everything. You know, Watson's not good at deducing too much, but he is good at writing his feelings and thoughts down. And, you know, strange things are happening. You know, there's a woman sobbing in the night. There's a low
0: moan that happens at one point. What's interesting about this part of the novel is that, again, it doesn't drag. It moves along nicely. But, like, the case that Watson has been sent to sensibly to be aware of is not developing in any way you know for this next section there's no attempt on Henry Baskerville's life there's no sightings of the Hound there's just like a lot of other odd things that are happening around the Moor so uh, Henry Baskerville develops an attachment to Stapleton's sister, Ms. Stapleton, mm-hmm. who keeps trying to insistently tell him that he should leave and it's dangerous, and he's like, I'll go anywhere with you. He's like, hey, baby. Hey, and she's like, no. <laughs> right. No, actually leave, though. Watson notices that Barrymore, the caretaker, creeps around at night and like holds a candle out in an unused bedroom window. He meets Franklin. Yes. (laughs) Who is is one of the other neighbors. He's uh, described as Franklin the Crank. He just like, he's this comic character who just does these frivolous lawsuits to pass the time because he's old and lonely. Mm -hmm. But Watson reports to Holmes, you know,
1: tells all that he knows, even says, my dear Holmes.
0: Yeah, that's how he starts his letters. Which is so cute. They're in love. He also writes in one of his letters at one point, you are aware that I am not a very sound sleeper. Side eye, everybody. Eventually, Mr. Stapleton intercepts his sister and, and Henry flirting, or Henry flirting and his sister being present, and blows up and is very angry about it and then like, has to stop by basketball hall later to apologize. And he says, my sister's very close to me and the thought of her being with another man is foreign to me and if you would just give me the period of three months... But then you may court her as you wish. Which is odd, which is an odd amount of time. Which I think, is, I think that's suspicious. Right. Another side eye. Another side eye.
1: And, and there's a moment where Watson, you know, is kind of baffled by Miss Stapleton's rejection of Henry. You know, he says, our friend's title, his fortune, his age, his character, and his appearance are all in his favor. Right. So even Watson
0: is like, Henry's hot. Go for it. I also love this as like a like Miss Stapleton. It doesn't matter how she feels, like which maybe is realistic for the time period. But Watson's argument is sort of like you know he's a wealthy guy. He's not mean. <laughs> right. She should be into him, right? Like even even like personal feelings aside, which is I don't know. It's an, it's a different time, right? It's a different time. So then we get we get back to the Barrymore subplot.
1: Because nothing's really happening, and they're kind of bored. So they're like, what should we do? Let's confront Barrymore about this.
0: Yeah, so they stay up late to hear him sneaking around. They like follow him, because he's half-deaf, into the bedroom. And they're like, what are you doing? And it eventually comes out that Barrymore's wife's brother is Selden the murderer. is the convict. a convict. Convict out on the moor. And they've been bringing him like food and old clothes to to provide for him. So they're like, "Well, I guess that's solved. You guys can go back to bed. Barrymore can go back to bed." And then Henry and Watson are like, "Don't we kind of have a duty to take care of that criminal out on the moor?" No. <laughs> no, you don't. Y'all y'all are just bored. I this is one of those things that I think is going to be an ongoing theme in looking at adaptations of Sherlock Holmes is that they are crime stories, so they have to have a, a sense of like what it means to be a criminal and how we feel about criminals, right? I think that's an inevitable part, really, of crime as a genre. And this idea that, like, that Watson has, that Selden is, like, the worst of the worst and has to be brought to justice and cannot be allowed to be left alone and must be in jail, must not be allowed to be in public, Mm -hmm. is... A little much, I think, you know. He's not hurting anyone on the moor. He's just getting fed. And we don't really get a lot of Selden's like, story. No. We get this odd, like, bit of psychology from Ms. Barrymore that, like, you know, we let him have anything he wanted as a child and now he's a murderer. (laughs) Maybe that's just how they thought murderers happened in the Victorian (laughs) era. So they, they decide to go... They chase across the moor after him. Right.
1: And they hear the hound-like sound again. They hear the... Aww. Right. That was a perfect impression. Mm-hmm. Yep. So they're chasing, they're chasing, and, you know, Selden does get away. But... But
0: Watson... Spies a man on the hill watching them. Right. Silhouetted by the moon. So we can't
1: really see who it is. It's yes. Just the silhouette.
0: And it, it's not the build of Barrymore or anyone else you see, and it's too tall to be Stapleton. It's, it's some other person mm-hmm. who's out there on the moor. Mm-hmm.
1: So now, now we have the quicksand, we have the hound, we have Selden, who's not going to harm anybody. But now we have this it's other. Somebody else. We have this other creepy man. Mm hmm. So if you'd like to vacation at the
0: Baskerville house. <laughs> yeah, don't don't go to Dartmoor. <laughs> so the next morning, Barry Moore sort of hurt. He's like, he wasn't hurting anybody. Why would you guys to go chase after him? And his wife is like, he's going to get away to South America soon. He's not going to hurt anybody. We're feeding him. He's not desperate to, if he held anybody up, that would give away his position. And they're like, all right, fine. He won't hurt anybody. We won't chase after him. It More. sort of, like, suggests that it really is just, like, a passing fancy for them. They were just like, well, I might as well. we've forgot an evening for you. I might as well chase after Salton, the murderer. Right. Right. They do it for no reason. Yeah, they do it for no reason.
1: We also learn from Barrymore that Charles Baskerville, remember, the guy that, you know, died at the beginning, was waiting for a woman at the time of his death.
0: Yes. Barrymore found a letter that he had burned, but it was still a little bit readable in the ash. And the initials were LL. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Mortimer, who Watson runs into outside of the mansion, says, oh, the only LL that I can think of is in the nearby town of Coombe, Tracy. There's a Laura Lyons. Mm
1: -hmm. Must be her. Must be her. I I like this little bit that Watson, you know, after hearing of all these new factors and new discoveries, he's like, and yet this new factor must surely arrest his attention and renew his interest. I wish he was here Uh, talking about Holmes. uh,
0: Yes, there's a couple times in the journals where he's like... I wish Holmes were here. I'm, I'm very anxious, and maybe this time Holmes will come. Maybe this new fact will make him come out finally and, and take care of this case. We also get one more tidbit from
1: Barrymore. We learn that Selden is or was aware of the other man on the moor. That was also in hiding. So Selden knows there's another guy out there, too.
0: Very mysterious. So the next day, Watson goes into town to find Laura Lyons. Mm-hmm. He interviews her... And she's eventually confesses that she did, in fact, write a letter to Sir Charles Baskerville, but she won't reveal why she didn't keep the appointment. She says it's a personal matter, and that's sort of all he can get out of her. Yeah, it's it's kind of left at that. Yeah. So then he's like, "Well, I'm out. I'm out anyway. I want to go find this like man on the moor." And he runs into Franklin the crank, and he kind of plays him like a fiddle. He's like being a little uninterested, so that Franklin will reveal more about. The man. So he has a telescope and he's seen a boy bringing food, like once a day, mm-hmm. to this man on the moor. And he's, he knows where he's staying and he points out the stone hut, which are like prehistoric huts. So Watson goes over there. He finds the food that's been dropped off, but no man. And at the bottom of the basket of food there's a note that says, Dr. Watson has gone to Coombe Tracy. So he's like, whoever this man is, he's like paying attention to me. Mm-hmm. He is tracking my movements. And then we hear
1: a man approaching. That's the man approaching. And then
0: a voice calls out. <laughs> I hoo it, it describes it as a, a familiar voice that calls right. out. And uh, it, it says, "It says, my dear Watson, it's a lovely night. Don't you think it would be more comfortable outside? Something along those lines. And what's funny is,
1: you know, if these stories were... Serialized. Right. That'd be like a big, like... Cliffhanger. Yeah, the biggest cliffhanger of all. You're like, who is this man? Who is this person? Who knows, wants it. I have to
0: wait a month or a week or whatever to find out. And we find out... Right, you flip the page. (laughs) It's... Sherlock. It's Sherlock Holmes. It's his
1: boyfriend. Back in the narrative again. And Watson says, a crushing weight of responsibility seemed in an instant to be lifted from my soul.
0: I also love this from the book. It says he had contrived with that cat-like love of personal cleanliness, which was one of his characteristics, that his chin should be as smooth and his linen as perfect as if he were in Baker Street. Yes, Queen. (laughs) (laughs) Right, he's kept clean. He's very tidy, very neat. Mm -hmm. Even though he's been living in a Paleolithic dwelling.
1: (laughs) Although Watson,
0: you know, he's he's a little hurt. You know, he's hurt that he was deceived by Holmes, you know. And Holmes is like, I'm sorry I had to deceive you, but your correspondences have been invaluable to me. I've had them forwarded. I have them all here. They're well thumbed through. And then Holmes is like, well, now I guess I'll just tell you. What's going on? What's going on? I think some people think that like the mark of a good mystery story is whether or not the audience could have solved it. Mm-hmm. On their own, if if the, like all the information is there, but you just don't know how to put it together, and then Holmes puts it together, and you're like, "Wow, I should have I should have got that." This is not one of those stories, right? Uh, up to this point, who did you think it was? I definitely thought Stapleton was the most suspicious. The like wait three months before you can talk to my sister, and the like odd, like vacillations in mood that he has were they really suspicious. I was like, we really haven't heard much about Dr. Mortimer, even though he brought the case. I was like, I feel like there's... Yeah. I, I feel w- like we could know more about this guy.
1: I was I was suspicious of Mortimer, and I was still kind of suspicious of Barrymore
0: for for most of it, to be honest. Because of the beard. Because of the beard. Because of the beard. Of the beard. And, and the fact that we don't ever... And, well, he's like in with the criminal and... Right. But Holmes is like, well, here's a couple pieces of information. Laura Lyons and Stapleton have a little thing. They have a a complete understanding. They're flirty in their letters. But what she doesn't know is that Stapleton is married to the woman who's posing as his sister. And I suspect that Stapleton is the architect of of this whole mystery. (laughs) So Holmes is like, I have arrived in the scene and also here's who the murderer is.
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) But before anything can finish, they hear a cry. Mm Mm-hmm. And
0: they rush across the moor. And there's a, find... a dead body. Yeah, there's a body. And it's Henry Baskerville. Right. And Holmes is like, Ah beans, I have failed, you know, like I I shouldn't have waited until I had a clearer case. I shouldn't have let him get away. We will have to catch him in revenge now instead of instead of before he before he kills Henry.
1: But hold on, wait a minute. No, that's not Henry. It turns out that man is Selden who
0: Barrymore had given some of Henry's old clothes. And he's like a murderer. So like, do we care if he dies? Even though he was trying to get away to South America was and wasn't hurting anybody. I was sad. Holmes does not feel like we should be sad. The book says, now he was dancing and laughing and wringing my hand <laughs> when he realized that Henry was still alive because he's like he didn't kill his client, I guess. And he's like, it's a murderer. <laughs> Who cares about murderers? So he pieces together that Selden is wearing Henry's clothes, which was given to him by the Barrymores. And the hound was probably following the scent from the old boot that was stolen. That's where the boots went. That's where the boots went. I told you the boots were important. And that Selden tripped and broke his neck while trying to run from the hound. All of a sudden Stapleton arrives and says that he was looking for Sir Henry, who he'd over. Stapleton recognizes Holmes and Holmes is like, oh, yep, I am just in town. I am in town, but I guess some cases aren't meant to be solved. I'm leaving tomorrow. Goodbye. Because <laughs> he doesn't want Staple to, to not act because he thinks Holmes is around. Right. So he's like, it's, it's time to catch this guy. We don't have the proof, but we're going to get it tomorrow. They go back to Griffel Hall, mm-hmm. and he uh, notices something that is the last piece of the puzzle in some ways, which is that the portraits of all the great Baskervilles one of them has a passing resemblance to Stapleton. And he pieces together that Stapleton is likely a... A Baskerville. A descendant of the Baskerville line. And then you have motive for why he would try to kill off all the Baskervilles. And, and Henry, you know, still alive
1: at the house. And he says, I might have had a more lively evening, for I had a message from Stapleton asking me over there. And Holmes goes, I have no doubt that you would have had a more lively evening. <laughs> which,
0: is, which, is, which is hilarious, actually. <laughs> He's funny. He's got jokes. He's funny. So he asks Stapleton. Nope. He does not. He asks Stapleton on a date. (laughs) And then they hug. They hug. And that's the end. No more murder. No more murder. He solved it. Stapleton just was looking for love. (laughs) The next morning, Holmes asks Henry to follow his exact orders which Henry agrees to he says tonight you have an invitation to dine with the Stapleton's go to dinner when you arrive send your carriage back and then after dinner walk across the moor alone back to Basterville Hall he says I'm going with Watson to London but we'll we'll help you eventually and he's like oh okay I thought you guys would help me now but fine I'm a little scared to be doing that but if you said I would so I will but not so fast Holmes and Watson aren't going to London the big double cross.
1: And they also wire Lestrade to, you know, to come to Baskerville Hall. And Lestrade is like, I'm coming and I'm coming with an unsigned arrest warrant. Somebody is going to jail. <laughs> I don't know who, but I trust you implicitly. Right. Right.
0: If Sherlock Holmes says I should come arrest somebody, I guess I will. Which is so interesting,
1: because in the first novel, you know, Lestrade is like, who is this Sherlock Holmes? You know, I'm
0: better than, you know, all that stuff. Yeah, I pulled a quote about this. It says, I saw it once from the reverential way in which Lestrade gazed at my companion that he had learned a great deal since the days when they had first worked together. Yeah, he's on Team Sherlock. And there's no Gregson. No, Gregson is out of the picture. We're we're barreling towards a conclusion here they set up camp outside of Stapleton's house while Henry is dining there right and there's this fog rolling in the whole time and they sort of like damn it if the fog covers the path then we won't have the visibility we won't be able to see the creature approaching but luckily they have good ears they have good ears so the fog does roll in but the but after Henry leaves and passes them they hear these the foot tapping of the hound and then it emerges I'm going to read this whole description because it's good A hound it was, an enormous coal black hound, but not such a hound as mortal eyes have ever seen. Fire burst from its open mouth. Its eyes glowed with a smoldering gaze. Its muzzle and hackles and dewlap were outlined in flickering flame. And then they shoot it to death.
1: Right. Saving Henry.
0: (laughs) Right. It like pounces at Henry and they shoot it to death, which is two for two on them killing dogs in these novels to solve crimes.
1: Yeah. What do they have against dogs? What does
0: Arthur Conan Doyle have against dogs?
1: I th- was he more of a cat person? Maybe he was a cat person. Maybe.
0: It's actually a three for three because we learned that Dr. Mortimer had a, a little spaniel that the hound ate. <laughs> These poor dogs. These poor dogs.
1: <laughs> I'm a little worried for Wishbone. Oh, right. We'll get there. Right. So the way that the dog was able to appear like, you know, he was blazing was he had phosphorus as a chemical applied to the coat of the dog. A, right, a
0: cunning preparation of phosphorus, which has no smell because it would otherwise hinder the dog's sense of smell, which is a bit of a cop-out. Mm-hmm. Arthur Conan was just like, yeah, and then it, it, he invented a version that doesn't smell even though he's just a, just a naturalist. <laughs> like, why, why is Stapleton able to do this? He's a naturalist. He's a naturalist. So, like, he could negate this. Like, chemicals have smells. Right. So, Stapleton has fled. They find his wife bound and bruised in the bedroom which is the name of an erotica novel I feel like right and she's like there's only one place he could have run to it's the old tin mine at the heart of the Grimpen Mire but she's like the fog is gonna you know be a little bit of a hindrance to him right he will not be able to see the wands we stuck into the earth to mark the, the safe path through the mire so the next day they go out and follow the the wands and they find some traces that he has been along the path. They find the old boot discarded but they don't see Stapleton. And when they get to the island, they see traces of where the dog was kept, There, but there are no new footprints suggesting that Stapleton made it into the mire and then sunk and mm-hmm. was consumed by it. This is a very classic like villain death I feel like, where it's like, he might come back. <laughs> right? It feels like a cop-out. Not, not that I need to see him die on on page or be brought to justice, but it just feels like he's being saved for another book. Like he's going to come back and be like, I have revenge on you, Mr. Holmes. Well, I'm curious what adaptations are going to
1: do with this, because I feel like the, the thing you do at this point is you have the big chase scene. Yes. And I feel like instead of, you know, it happening off camera, off page, I have a feeling we're going to have adaptations where we
0: do see him fall into the mire. Yeah, probably. More dramatically satisfying. Yeah. So basically, thus wraps up The Hound of the Baskervilles. There's another chapter where two months later, Watson gets home to talk a little bit more about the case and he explains how things were from Stapleton's point of view, his mm-hmm. backstory and his machinations, which I think we've mostly already explained. Right. This chapter gets like weirdly racist against the Spanish. Right. For some reason, Holmes is like, well, there was a manservant at the house called Anthony, and Anthony's not a very common name in England, but in Spanish-speaking countries, Antonio is, and he he spoke good English but with a lisping accent, <laughs> uh, which like, sure, <laughs> so he was in on the scheme, I guess, and part of it, and he's gotten away, and then also Mrs. Stapleton is of Spanish descent, and he describes that. He thinks that if he wasn't there, Stapleton might might have gotten away with his designs on Henry Baskerville, but that he probably wouldn't have lived long because he was beating up his wife. And he writes, "A woman of Spanish blood does not condone such an injury so lightly." Which, like, are you saying a woman of English blood would? <laughs> like, why why are you gotta right. bring why are you gotta bring race into it and perpetuate this like fiery Latin thing? Just racist, you know.
1: And then at the end, you know, when all things are wrapped up, Watson and Sherlock go on a little date. They go out for dinner
0: and go to the opera. And the book ends. They have a cute little date night. Good for them. Good for them. What do you think of The Hound of the Baskervilles?
1: I liked it a lot. I liked that we actually got like a proper mystery.
0: Yes. Yeah. It definitely feels like Arthur Conan has figured out how to write a novel. In some ways, it's, yeah, it's much more satisfying to read. I think it, like, good tension throughout. I think you are invested and engaged throughout. Whereas in Scarlet, in a study in Scarlet, when the Utah section started, I was like, what is happening? Do I have to read this? What's going on? Right. Yeah. Is this relevant?
1: Right. And it, it, it is, but it just takes so long to make it relevant. It's kind of the, it could have been an email of books. At least with this, you know, we got the short, oh, he did this because of this. And it's like a short little moment.
0: Whereas, Well, what I think it is, is like, I think Study in Scarlet, which is also uh, a third shorter than Hound of the Baskervilles, is a short story being padded for time. Right. That's what it feels like. Yeah. It's it's been padded out to novel length with this elaborate backstory, which is not necessary, when it really just wants to be a short story. Probably should have kept it a short story well except that that it launched some of the most recognizable characters in the western literature canon you know like it clearly it caught on with audiences and people loved it so who are we to judge it right i'm just kidding we're we doing a whole podcast about judging things <laughs> so we have developed a system to rate the adaptations of the home's stories so that we can judge them against each other on five criteria and I thought it would be useful to apply this criteria to these two Holmes novels so we get a baseline Mm -hmm. for Arthur Conan Doyle's version of the characters that we can judge against the adaptations. So, uh, those five criteria are loyalty to source material, grade of mystery, Britishness, thrill, uh, and queer subtext or LGBTQ. Get it. Right? It's subtle. (laughs) With a capital B. <laughs> right. <laughs> so let's just go through those and apply a rating. I guess we'll do a combined rating. Yes. For both stories. So the first one is loyalty to the source material. I mean, it's it's the source material.
1: It is the source material. So it
0: has to be a five. It has to be a five. Has wow. to be. Right. I think out of five. I think that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, the next one is grade of mystery so this is like how good how good is the mystery as a a mystery story you know
1: i think studying scarlet is a three Mm -hmm. in terms of mystery but hound but hound surely makes up for it yes yeah
0: i'd give a a hound a full five even though i'm a little annoyed that we didn't know like the important detail about stapleton until Holmes showed up and told us
1: but i think because we get like the regular mystery sort of in studying Scarlet it yeah. kind of makes up for it so a nice four to to round it out
0: okay I can agree with that yeah the next one is Britishness I mean it's pretty British except for I mean Hound of the Basketballs is pretty British because it's just about how depressing the English countryside is <laughs> right the entire time but in studying Scarlet we go to Utah for like 40 pages. Right. But I think Hound is so British that
1: it overpowers it.
0: You don't want to go full five on this. You no. can't go full five. We're in Utah for so long.
1: No, I think a, a good four. I could be too four. Yeah. Thrill, overall enjoyment. I think they're both fun. Hmm. It's unfortunate that City and Scarlet, the mystery part is so short. I would have loved that if it were longer.
0: Yeah. I think, I think we both had that. The moment in *Studying Scarlet* where where we're like having fun, then we're like, "Oh, and now I'm I'm less invested in this romance novel subplot than I was in the the murders and the crime Mm -hmm. of it all." Yeah. Uh, *Hound* the *Masters* also has its like odd subplots in the middle, but I was like, it feels related and I'm engaged the whole time. Right.
1: Plus, I feel like *Hound* has some more thrilling characters and thrilling suspects. You know, interesting. Suspects than I would say, studying Scarlet does. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a more wide array of characters. Yeah. So overall, overall, not a perfect five. Not a perfect five. I would say four.
0: Okay. And then queer subtext. Five. I feel like I feel like you're not leaving room for it to get queerer. You think you you think this is the max we could possibly reach?
1: i mean i think we can go higher well maybe we maybe we go four leave room for improvement sure
0: so that's a total of 21 yep so all the others have to beat
1: 21 which is pretty high marks actually right (laughs) Um, right that's out of 25 so we'll see we'll see
0: we'll see i'm excited to jump into it me too Next week, we're doing our first casebook, which are the minisodes we're doing between main capital A adaptations. Mm -hmm. The first of those is looking at probably two of the most famous Sherlock Holmes short stories. We'll introduce some really important characters. Yes, we're doing A Scandal in Bohemia, so we get to meet Ms. Irene Adler. And the final problem, so we get to meet Professor Moriarty. And then the week after that, we are looking at our first film adaptation, which is the 1939 Hound of the Baskerville starring Nigel Bruce and Basil Rathbone. So a lot of exciting ones coming up. It's going to be a fun ride. It's going to be a fun ride.
1: And I'm super excited for it. And we want to thank you so much for joining us this week.
0: We are the Baker Street Regulars.
1: And we will see you next time.